You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Sermon text for this morning is Acts chapter 15, 1 through 21. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. may be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing this morning. Father in heaven, we pray that you would open up your word to us, you pour out your spirit upon us, you cause us, Father, to grow more bold in understanding of the gospel, and that as we um, hear your word, that we would drink it very deeply, that we go down and, and nourish um, our very hearts, Father, so we might serve you with joy, not only this week, but uh, the weeks and the years and the ages to come. We pray this in your son's name, amen. Well, as I open up this morning, I can't help but uh, touch on uh, Jason's story about buying me lunch. Uh, that's absolutely true. That did happen. Um, 
It's not lying. I just figured it was better to give than to receive. Um, and so I wanted him to have the better half of that. And uh, along those lines, I therefore invite all of you to lunch whenever you'd like to go. <laughs> no, I <laughs> it was quite an embarrassment, but so thankful for my dear brother. And uh, without trying to get too sidetracked at the very beginning here, I do think this fits in with our, our text. Um, and that is uh, here across the Twin Cities, uh, the number of um, what I'd say uh, are broadly reformed pastors and churches. And um, there's quite a network uh, of them. It's informal. We don't have any like binding obligations with each other and so on. But um, it's really bound together in the love of Christ. And um, uh, Pastor Redberg is, is one of those. He's very special to me. I, I delight in spending time with him. He's an encouragement to me. And when I talk with other pastors around the country, friends of mine who are ministering in other cities, um, and I tell them that in a, a major metro area of three and a half million people, that the reform guys actually like to get together, tease each other, love on each other, encourage each other on. We don't feel like there's rivalries between our churches, and yet we have distinctions between each other, which we are willing to contend over and debate, but we have great love in the Lord. Um, more than once I've had other pastors start weeping on the phone. Say, it's like that? It's like that in the Twin Cities? <laughs> it is. It's like that. We like each other. There's maybe one or two stinkers, but uh, for the most part, they're... It's not a holier-than-thou, who's the most reformed, chest-thumping kind of contest. It's, it's actually um, deeply, deeply um, rooted in the love of Christ, and it is a joy to me, it is a delight to me. Um, and that's the work of Christ. That's the work of the gospel in our midst. And your brothers and sisters, it's, it's a joy to be here in this place. Because of that, it's a joy to be here in this time in which we live to minister on behalf of Christ. And I think our passage today has much to speak to us on that. Uh, you might recall that the church has gone through many pivotal moments in her history since um, the Jerusalem Council here. The Jerusalem Council itself is a very pivotal moment. You could imagine things going sideways in perhaps earthly wisdom and earthly imagination and everything falling apart because of the circumcision party. And there are constant assaults in the early church, whether it's with uh, docetism or Gnosticism or you name your thing, but wrestling with who is Christ, who what, is he actually God and man? How does that all work? And, and so forth. Those debates, at, at times it looked like every, the world was going the opposite direction. And that uh, orthodoxy, that the truth of the gospel wouldn't win out. And so we think of perhaps Athanasius and his nickname, right? Uh, Athanasius, uh, the black dwarf of all things. A northern African saint. Uh, a man of, of significant love for the Lord confessing what he believed about Jesus, and it was true and right, but he was so powerful, and the world seemed like it had gone so astray, the church had gone so astray, that it was Athanasius contramundum, right? Athanasius standing almost as if it were on his own against the, the errors that were plaguing his day. But Athanasius stood strong because he trusted in the Lord, and we fast forward to the Reformation. We think about Luther, for instance, and him taking his stand, and he could do no other. There are many instances where we as believers um, in the history of the church have had to stand very strong and say, no, this is the gospel. We may not pervert it and we may not twist it. And such is what we see today in Acts 15. It's the Jerusalem Council, perhaps the first example of this um, that uh, comes to mind for you, but there are many others. And I'm gonna, at the end of our time together, I'm going to um, draw out, um, depending on how much time we have, I'm going to draw out a few um, application points from what we're going to be looking at here that I, that I think are our Jerusalem Council moment at, at our time in history and what God wants us to confess about him. 
So that's in the future, that's, that's coming, that'll be the concluding remarks. But I've, I have three sections here that I'm going to be dealing with in our passage. First of all, there's opposition, it seems, everywhere. So the opposition, first of all, gets commandeered. Uh, that's verses 1 through 5. The opposition thinks it's going to get something, it's demanding a certain thing, and then that opposition actually starts to serve the purposes of God. And this is the way that God operates frequently. Evil men plot one thing, and they are plotting to do this evil thing, and then God says, I'll use that, and he brings tremendous good out of it. We have to see that play run over and over again, differing characters, differing settings, but that same play is run over and over again in the scriptures. We cannot miss it. If we miss it, then we grow disheartened in our time where similar things are happening. People plot. (laughs) People imagine a vain thing, and what does God do in heaven? Wring his hands? God laughs, and then he breaks it, breaks the rebellion. And oftentimes he breaks by making people friends who were once enemies. So that's our first section is the opposition. It's going to get commandeered, begin to be commandeered, verses 1 through 5. And then the opposition is going to be overwhelmed by testimony in verses 6 through 18. That's the council proper itself. And then at the, the third point here, the opposition is going to be answered. And they're going to be answered in a surprising kind of way. I'm going to touch lightly on that because that's going to come up again next week. And I want Pastor Redberg to explain the difficulties there, not have it be on my shoulders. I just want the easy part, right? Now, I'll... I'll um, I'll touch on that, I'll I'll address that, and show how in all these three areas, whether it's the opposition being commandeered, the opposition being overwhelmed, or the opposition being answered in verses 19 through 21, that grace is triumphing left and right in the midst of all this. And we should anticipate then, if that's the case here with these men, we should anticipate that in our own lives, our own times as well. A couple, a few more contextual things for us. Remember, I think Dale said this last week, I've been listening to sermons here for the last couple weeks in preparation, that opposition and conversion come together as a major theme throughout Acts, and that continues in our own life, opposition and conversion, and whether it's conversion of the individual or the gospel message in its integrity being promoted, either way, those things oftentimes go together because, honestly, Satan doesn't like it that we invade with our heavenly kingdom and take people out of his kingdom. So there's opposition. Remember the beginning of Acts, that uh, there Jesus tells his apostles, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. And Acts 15 is kind of the, um, not the absolute beginning, but the realization that this is going to the ends of the earth. So it's right in the middle of Acts, and this is a moment where, where eyes are being opened and they're beholding, oh, this is what God is actually doing And um, we're going to have to not just live with this, but rejoice in this. And it's surprising, it's mysterious, and so forth. So that's another thing that we need to remember. And then also, not just the beginning of Acts, but the end of Acts. How does the end of Acts play in here? Well, Paul's in house arrest. Paul is preaching, he's teaching, he's doing it with all boldness. And the the last word, it's two English words, but last word in Greek, is um, he's doing all these things without hindrance. (laughs) The opposition, though it's there, keeps coming Paul is able, even under house arrest, even in Rome, right, to continue to preach and proclaim the gospel without hindrance. The gospel cannot be stopped, in other words, and we're seeing that here in our passage as well. The beginning and the end of Acts are in focus right here in the middle of Acts. And then finally, contextually, the Gentile question, which has been simmering in the background, is now going to come right out in the light. And uh, there's so much, so many places that we could jump out from this text that uh, we could spend five, six sermons probably talking about the importance of the thinking, the theology behind the Jerusalem Council and how it affects everything else in the New Testament. 
uh, we'll have some samplings of that where we won't be able to touch on everything. Last thing by way of introduction, I know a little bit lengthy here, but just to condense down what I was saying before about our confidence it, um, is this, and I don't mean this to be catchy, I just want to try to drive home something quickly. Contending for the gospel, right? When we contend for the gospel, we need to be contending in the gospel, right? There's a way to contend for something and your heart's not in it or you're all bothered and angry and so forth. But here we're seeing that contending for the gospel and in the gospel for Paul and Barnabas and then the apostles is actually, it's a gracious, it is actually a gracious gift itself. God is being gracious in allowing them to contend in the gospel for the gospel. Why is that? Because it leads them further into the triumph of Christ, further into the riches of his grace. Much like suffering, right? as, as C.S. Lewis talks about, suffering being God's megaphone to us. Right? Or in our sufferings, we are being identified with Christ and we learn something and, and Christ grows our faith um, in the midst of that, that hardship. So too, contending for the gospel, in the gospel, as gracious, loving, truth-filled, spirit-filled believers, as we do that, that's a gracious gift that actually unpacks something of the triumph of Christ for us. We'll see that here. Let's turn to the first five verses. You can listen or you can um, look at it. Um, I'm going to jump a number of different places, so it's up to you how you want to, to interact here. But the first question I want to ask is, we got these, these um, s- the people of the circumcision, right, the circumcision party, they're, they're coming in and they're saying to uh, the men who are with Paul and Barnabas after they've just come and declared what God has done and everybody's happy, and lo and behold, Judaizers again. Can't believe it. They come in and say, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What would drive people to think this way? We don't have the, the list here exactly, what's going on in their, their minds, um, but we can imagine, and I think rightly so, because... Um, there are a number of things we can learn by thinking about this. So why would they think that Jesus plus circumcision equals justification? Basic math problem there. Why would they think that? Well, first of all, it could be a theological error, right? Just a straight up, honest theological error. I don't think this is the answer. Um, There's certainly a theological error here, but it's not the only answer. But you can see something of this. You know, there's equity in the Old Testament law. It applies in various ways. Perhaps it's they got thinking about, you know, we need to be in the world but not of the world, and how do we mark ourselves off? So circumcision, right? That's different. And so they should do this because we don't want to be of the world. If that's the case, you can kind of see how they could get distracted on this. It could be that there's a deep ethnic loyalty as well. We know how this runs, right? We're, there's one race, the human race, and it's fallen. But there are lots of ethnicities around the world, and, you know, I don't really like Ludafisk, um, even though I'm half Finnish. That's, I'm just too far north to appreciate it, apparently. Uh, but there's some people, like Ludafisk at Christmas time, if you don't have it, you're not really, like, celebrating Christmas. I know that's been less of a thing, probably, in recent years here. But you get these deep ethnic loyalties that are there, and you, hey, you want to be part of the team, you got to eat the Ludafisk. You want to be part of God's people, you need to be circumcised. You can see how they could be pulled in there. But what I think is going on is what Paul writes to us in Titus. And I want to read this to you. And I want to read this as a warning because this is beyond just the circumcision party. This happens um, in a number of places in a number of different ways. And I think it can touch and cut all of us. So this is Paul talking. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced 
since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's a deep condemnation there. That cuts deeply. But that's who we are in our own pride and our own willfulness. If we try to sneak in works into our salvation, if it's not Jesus plus the faith he gave us, right, yielding repentance and trust in him and our salvation all bound up with that, but if it's some work like circumcision or some other work, which we'll see at the end, you, you import that in and you're in danger. Paul is willing to contend sharply over this. By sharply, doesn't mean that he's exploding. He's doing it in the gospel, remember? In the gospel, for the gospel. Nonetheless, um, he's found this. People who are promoting circumcision ultimately have not just a theological error or perhaps an ethnic loyalty, but they have deep spiritual problems that are not, they're not receiving the grace of God as they ought, and so they're a liability. They're disobedient. They're unsound. They disturb not just themselves, but entire families and so forth. You can usually mark them all out because they are not marked by grace, right? a grace that's free, a grace that you cannot purchase. So I think that's in the background here. It could be a mix as well, and not just the ones teaching circumcision here at the beginning, but also the Pharisees. I'd throw this in, them into this in verse 5 as well. well. Let's ask the second question as we're on the way to seeing the opposition commandeered here. Why would Paul and Barnabas promote Jesus plus faith equals justification? Seems like an easy answer, right? But let's delve into it. Because they saw and knew it in their own lives, right? They saw and they knew it in their own lives. It's not just a message that's a proposition that's in the brain, but they have seen it and they live it. They've beheld it. And when somebody with that kind of testimony runs into the opposition that's doing the theological cartwheeling, that's on their own personal pride trip, whatever it is that's going on there. I can tell you the experience with Jesus, knowing the gospel, rejoicing in it, using the words that God gives to you, God gives to, you to exalt his name, those win left and right. Left and right. And it's not just the clever. It's not just the people who have gone off to seminary. It's for all of you. It's very hard for people to argue with you they say, well, if you're in a conversation, you know, what do you think you need to do to be right with God? And somebody says, well, I just think I, yeah, I'm a pretty good person, and whoever God is, he's going to pat me on the back at the end of the day, and I'm just going to, I'm trusting that, I'm banking on that. And you come alongside and you say, oh, well, my, my testimony is very different. I, <laughs> I, I am so needy, I am so needy of a Savior, and he saved me, and this is what he's done to me. Right? And it doesn't have to be filled with the Christianese, but just an honest profession of who Jesus is. That confession of faith wins in that argument. Somebody walks away saying, they humbled themselves. They brought themselves low, and, and they are exalting this God. And who is this God? And we see that throughout Acts. We see that throughout Paul's life. We see that with Barnabas. You remember at the very beginning, Acts 4, where Barnabas shows up, and he, he does what? He, he not only is trusting in the Lord, but he sells 
his field and gives that money. He doesn't have to do that, but he gives that out of great love for the brethren and what God's done in his life. It shows you how humble he is, how low he is. And then immediately on the backside, right, Ananias and Sapphira. It's like no good thing will go unpunished or like perverted and twisted. Then Ananias and Sapphira, well, if they've done that, I'll just, we'll go even further. And we see what happens to them, right? Such as, again, the Titus 1.10 kind of warning. There are people who respond that way, and it's a deep spiritual problem. But Paul and Barnabas, they've seen it in their own lives. They've seen it in the lives of others, that it's not because of their works. It's because God being gracious to them. And they have that testimony, which is why, as they go down to uh, Jerusalem, they begin to testify of all that God's done, not just in their own lives, but in the lives of whom? The Gentiles. Right? That message, right? really? The Gentiles? I, couldn't, I didn't see that coming. I know. Right? It's Ephesians 3. Right? It's the mystery that was kept secret since the world began. It's the, the thing that is hard to bend your mind around in the early church that God's people now includes the Gentiles. Those who are far off have been brought near. It's, it's almost inconceivable for certain minds, and here are Paul and Barnabas just praising God for what he's done. And, and that wins. That message wins. That's why they would promote Jesus equals faith equals justification. But here's the last thing on this, um, on why Paul and Barnabas would be talking this way here as they, they go down. And that's because they're shepherds. And what shepherds do are part of what shepherds do. Shepherds need to fight off anyone who would lead sheep astray from the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in Titus 1. So when he says in verse 10, there are many who are indeed insubordinate, empty talkers. If we read the, the verse right before that, he's talking about qualifications for elders. And he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it because there are those who contradict it because the gospel is ever at threat of being twisted and perverted. And I don't mean that in a fear tactic kind of way, because again, we want to be in the gospel as we contend for the gospel, so we're secure. Yet at the same time, since it's so precious and so good, and man's heart's so twisted, and even those with a religious veneer, like the circumcision party or the Pharisees, um, even though they, they have a religious veneer, you know that somebody can come along and twist it very quickly, and so we need to be on guard for it. Again, I'm setting up for the end. I wish I could give you that now. Just hold that in your mind. So they travel down to Jerusalem. And you think about what's behind this. Paul and Barnabas, if I were Paul, and I'm thinking about a trip to Jerusalem, I'm thinking, you know, that's going to take up some time. I like it up here in Antioch. I like ministering to you people. We're discipling you. It's good. And I'm an apostle. Like, I have apostolic privilege. And Barnabas, he's no slouch either. And, and Paul and Barnabas and us together, we just, you know, we're going to say, we rebuke you, go away. Right? This is not the gospel way. In my own wisdom, I, I could think that way. But what, what do Paul and Barnabas do? They consult with the church there. And they send them down, the church sends them down, along with some other people, to go to Jerusalem to ask the other apostles about this question. Does that indicate that they're insecure up there in Antioch? That maybe Paul and Barnabas got it wrong? No, I don't think that's the case. I could be wrong on that, so I'm not saying it's absolute certainty, but I think this is just demonstrating their heart. What Paul and Barnabas are what? They're humble and submissive men. They know how godly authority works. 
Paul is, is willing to lay himself down wherever he can for the sake of the truth. It's not him being on a power trip. How often do we see in the, the epistles where Paul, he could command something, but instead he appeals. Plead with you. I appeal with you. Right? And he's gentle. He's kind. And I think Paul and Barnabas and the others who are going down Jerusalem are showing this as well, that contending for the gospel doesn't mean that they just draw a line in the sand, hunker down, get the long face on their, on their face, and then bang their spear and their shield together and say, bring it. Like, no, we should enlist the help of others and we should be humble. Maybe we're missing something in this. We know the gospel, but is, what opportunities? What, how do we best want to address this? And so they go down to Jerusalem. We just stop here for a moment. The opposition is being commandeered by these moves because the opposition doesn't know how to operate in that fashion. Humility, submission, right? Testimonies of God's goodness rather than boasting in yourself. All of these things just on their own here are enough to upend the opponents if you play it out long enough. But there's going to be more. So they're commandeering the opposition. The opposition at the beginning thought, okay, we're going to get people to be circumcised. And now they're going to find out that circumcision is going to be held, handed a very deadly blow in a moment. It's our second point. And this is about as long as the first point. Third point is going to be pretty short. And then the concluding things. The opposition gets overwhelmed in verses 6 through 18. The apostles and the elders were gathered together, considered this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between, that, between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Let me just pause here for a second. Remember back in Acts 10, Peter has been given this vision of the unclean animals being let down in a sheet, and it's three times, and, and he says, no, I, you know, far be it from me to eat anything that's unclean. And, and, and you read that, and you think, okay, it's about the food. But then you, you move ahead a little bit, and then Peter says this in, in chapter 10, verse 28. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me, referring to the vision, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You see what, Paul, what Peter's done there? He shifted from the food, right? Okay, I've got the food. The food is not unclean. And he shifted and he says, now God's telling me by this that no person is unclean. And that's a right jump theologically. He's connecting the dots for what God wants there. And that's in the background of here. He's realized this connection between food and ethnicity of, of the world that he's not to be thinking of them in an unclean fashion if God has made them clean. It's not by obeying the law, but it's by God who knows the heart, changing the heart. And again, you think about Peter. Has Peter seen this in his own life? man who's overly zealous at times and then timid and falls apart, confesses who Christ is and then gets rebuked and called Satan right after it. Peter's known the highs and the lows. He knows something of his own heart. He, is not <laughs> he has no reason to be proud in and of himself at this point. And then to see that God has granted such humility of heart to the Gentiles through Peter, through his ministry, that they might turn and believe is a testimony of God's goodness. It's plain. For us, we can just skim over these verses and you think, oh, well, yeah, see, can't just, just get over it. It's, it's not a problem. We're, you know, we all see this. For Peter, 
This is gripping. This is arresting. This is something that was not in the playbook for him, that God would save these people who are so different than he is. Got to hold on to that as well for the end as we, we get there. And how does he do it? He does it by the Holy Spirit. Right? He does it by changing their hearts, and he does it by faith. He doesn't do it by works of the law. You can hear Galatians 2 in the background with all this, right? Works of the law, nobody's going to be saved. So verse 10, here's the consequence for Peter. He says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? And it's not a good thing. There's one place you're supposed to put God to the test. That's with the tithe in Malachi. Right? Test me in this. Right? Uh, otherwise, you don't test God. So why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? All that circumcision means, they have failed with. That's the point of the law at this, at least at this theological point here. It's led them up to Christ by saying, you need a savior. You think you're separate from the world? You're just like the world. That's because you have Adam as your father. And you need to have Christ as your brother. And the way they've accessed that has not been through circumcision. It's not been through the works of the law. The law has testified beyond itself to Christ, and it's in him that they have forgiveness. They know this, but then it's just shocking that God would go further with it. Shocking to him. But he sees it, he testifies it, of it, and says, we can't give this to them. We cannot put this burden on them. We can't go backwards here. What happens? The assembly falls silent, and they listen to Barnabas and Paul. In verse 12, as they related what signs and wonders God did through them among the Gentiles. So Peter, right, his vision from God, the remarkableness of that in salvation history, if you want to put it that way, that, that first testimony of Peter is hard-hitting, so much so that everybody gets quiet. They're contemplating it. And then Paul and Barnabas, in just a few words, is given here, right? They have this corresponding testimony of Paul and Barnabas, and they talk about the signs and wonders, and you just kind of skip over that and punch out, right? Now, think in terms of Ephesians 2. I know it's more like Bible study time here, but this is good for us just to connect the dots. Ephesians 2. Paul's not quoting that there, but this is Paul's mind on the matter. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Marvelous statement. But later on in chapter 3, Paul talks about this being the mystery. Like this is the thing that you just, it was not anticipated that God would do this. And I read that passage there. 
because that ties into what James says. So Paul and Barnabas are talking about the signs and wonders, what God's done amongst the Gentiles, whether they fleshed out Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 in its content, we don't know, but we know later on, because it seems like it's later on with the Ephesians correspondence, that um, Paul thinks this, wa- this way. This is one of the consequences of what they're debating here. And so what does James say, verse 15, 13, excuse me? After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the words the prophets agree, just as it is written in Amos 9. After this, I'll return. I'll rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What's going on here? James And he says he's taken the Gentiles, he's visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. The word the people or a people is a term that's used of God's special people. Not just the nations, it's not the word for Gentiles, it's the word for God's precious people. He's made a people for himself out of the Gentiles. And then thinking through the scriptures, James, so we have the testimony of of Peter, his vision, which is unique, uh, I don't know if any of you have anything like that in your, your history. I certainly don't. I think those days have ended, but that's a rather unique word from the Lord that came to Peter, and you want to test that. You want to push on that with the word. It, then you get the testimony of Paul and Barnabas about what they've seen, what God has done, and now you have James rightly tethering this to Scripture, not as though the others aren't tethered in some way, but James thinking, okay, wh- what's going on here? And he thinks of Amos 9, 10 through 11, and he's quoting from the Septuagint. Interesting. I, don't, I can't say this for sure, but it would seem like he's quoting from the Septuagint, um, one, because what's available there, and then two, because this is very applicable to the Greek-speaking ones. They don't read Hebrew and so forth. And the Septuagint emphasizes a bit more the, the nature of the Gentiles coming into God's people. And that's what he says, right? Beginning, I'm rebuilding the tent of David. I'm rebuilding that house. I'm rebuilding the worship of me. I'm restoring it. The remnant of, the man, of mankind is going to see me. They're going to behold me. They're going to know me. And what is God going to do in the midst of that? He's going to call out the Gentiles. He's established these things from old. James is tracking something that's actually older than Moses. He's tracking back, though he doesn't say it here. He's tracking back in salvation history to the very garden that we were alienated from God all of us. There's no difference, Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, black or white, on down the list. We are alienated from God. The human race is in rebellion, and God, through his Son, is reconciling us to him, reconciling peoples across the face of the earth, not just one people group that's separate from everybody else, but he's calling people from all backgrounds, all nations, all manner of sin, And he's got this eclectic bunch of people that now he has made kings and queens and sons and daughters, justified, sanctified for all eternity. His people, his precious people. (laughs) It just blows the mind, right? And you think about it. And we're going to take that next step, or we're going to take that concluding step in a moment, but let me look at the letter that, or the, the commands that James comes up with here at the end, verses 19 through 21. So we see that grace has been commandeered, or the opposition has been commandeered. 
the opposition is being overwhelmed now by the history of God's dealings with mankind. This story is greater than any story that the circumcised or the circumcision party can tell. Can tell, excuse me. So they're being overwhelmed by the testimony, and now the opposition is going to be answered. And this is what James says. And I think James is saying, this is my opinion, and they're going to ratify it together in verse 22. We'll let uh, Pastor Redberg talk about that next week. But verse 19, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. See that? My judgment? We shouldn't trouble them. Why don't we trouble them with the burden of the law? It's not what we're after. Right? And the judgment here is not, I'm judging, I'm the head of the church, everybody bow down to my judgment. God is being gracious in giving the, the ability to judge the situation to the apostles. And he does this for us in controversy too. You, you feel this? Do you know this? Your elders here, I, I mean, I don't know all the details of every single thing, but I know enough that the elders here have borne heavy burdens. I know in my, <laughs> my church, my small church, the burdens at times can seem like they, they make you despair of ministry. Go, oh Lord, it's just, it's too much. I can't, I, how do I, I don't have the wisdom. You give this, give the grace that's necessary. You just feel so weak and incapable. Or you apply this to parents. They, like, how do I raise my children? They, we live in a hostile age. Satan is trying to devour the seed of the woman everywhere, it seems like. And I'm afraid, what do I do? You just, you know, there are lots of ways to get worked up this way. Take heart. God gives his people the ability to judge matters and to find a way forward in his grace. God's grace is attendant here in the judgment. So my judgment, we shouldn't trouble those of Gentiles who turn to God. But here's what we should do. We should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. You, know, you, you read this just at cursory glance. It looks like he both gives and takes away, right? Like, you, are you talking out of both sides of your mouth here, James? Because you, you say don't trouble them, but then you give some, some laws. And some of these laws, like, fit into dietary code and Jewish, uh, what? And sexual immorality, what about murder? Maybe you should throw that in on the list, James. What are you, what are you doing? And I think the quick summary of this is that um, James is just enacting what we see in Romans 14, or we see in 1 Corinthians 8 through 11, and that is that you're bearing weak, weaker brothers. <laughs> now, what has happened? Remember talking about overcoming and reversals and the triumph here of grace? The circumcision party now is being seen as the weaker brother. They have a problem. We've got to try to care for these people. Let's not try to cause any stumbling blocks for them. If you're the weaker party, you need to get strong, get out of being the weaker party, right? Okay, so the best week... Uh, so it's not the best we can do. But what we'll do, my recommendation, James says, is let's have them abstain from the things that are really obnoxious to the Jews. They don't, they don't have to go out and eat things that are strangled, sacrificed idols, and so forth. When you're around the Jews, because Moses has been read in every city, right, he's been proclaimed, there's synagogues all over the place, let's try to deal with this Jew-Gentile division, not by making the Gentiles conform to Jewish law, but equip the Gentiles with the ability to be gracious towards the Jewish people who are struggling so that the gospel of Christ might be spoken to them. Which is the habit of Paul, going to the city, make a beeline for the synagogue, talk about Jesus there. doesn't want to get into a theological debate about circumcision. That would get in the way of Jesus unless that's the only thing that has to be talked about and then sign him up. He's willing to go after it. 
rather than being distracted, rather than uh, making the, the Gentiles an unnecessary stumbling block to the, the Jews, Jesus is, or James is being gracious, I think, to the, to the Jewish people in this. And I think it's a reversal. It's an upside-down kind of play. It's just the type of thing that when you're contending for the gospel and you're in the gospel, that you would think of doing. <laughs> they want to bring me into slavery? No, I'm going to exercise my freedom in that I won't partake. I just won't do it. And then, and we'll see how that love gets at you. And it does. It gets at people. It either drives them, right? We see when you do good to your enemies, right? Piles up coal, coals of fire on their head. It's a judgment. And there are people who break under that. And there are others who, when confronted with that, um, go off the rails. And they prove who they actually are. And so I think that's what's going on here with, with the council. I think they're triumphing in the grace of Jesus. They're demonstrating it themselves. They're speaking, certainly, of the stories of it. And now it's going to be a marvelous thing across the face of the earth. So I want to bring this to conclusion. And I, I've been alluding to a few things along the way. And I, I think these are some. They're not only the things, but they're, they're things that I deal with on a regular basis now incre increasingly at Minnesota Family Council. And I'm not trying to do a stump speech for them, but just where my head is so you can triangulate me. I think we're in an age where um, it's not circumcision that is the, the false gospel or threatening the gospel. I think things like social justice talk are a real threat to the gospel. And, and that's not because we don't want justice, we don't want it society, but people are beginning to think, and, and this is surprising to me, this is shocking to me. Your pastor, in fact, texted me, he was at an event, and he's like, has the world gone crazy? I can't even remember what, like our people are saying things <laughs> that are not in line with the gospel. People that we love and admire and know personally. And it's along the lines of like racial reconciliation, which on the surface, who here, um, just raise your hand. If you want to be a racist, raise your hand. Okay? <laughs> no, we, that's, that is a sin. Right? That, that is ugly. And there's certainly problems with racism in many different places. We shouldn't pretend like that's not the case. So hear that very, very clearly. Right? But my, my contention is that the problem with racism ultimately is that we are of the human race. Right? All of us are fallen in Adam, and we love to come up with ways to prefer one another over the other person, to strut our stuff and to, to minimalize or marginalize different people, whether that's um, what's happening right now with Christians in our country. You guys believe what? <laughs> Give me a break. Marriage between a man and a woman? Go over into the quiet corner, wear the dunce cap, come back when you can learn to say that you can marry whoever or whatever you want as many times as you like. You say, no. <laughs> see, the gospel, um, uh, in, in we see in Ephesians 5 that, that marriage is a picture of the gospel. as between a man and a woman, just as between Christ and the church. Would you stop saying such insensitive things? Um, no. I, in fact, let's drill down on that. Let's go deeper. And go deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel, defending the gospel, telling our story of the gospel, like what's going on here. And then seeking to do what? Violence to those who disagree? Seeking to do good. Bless them. Love them. There are ways that we can, and this is dangerous talk here. I'm not, I don't have anything wild in, in, in my mind on this, but just you've got to be willing to say at the end of the day, it's not about my rights. I've got rights as an American or as a Christian here. And I've got First Amendment rights. 
as though those are the most important things. You have Jesus. Could you, could you possibly consider like what we saw in Hebrews 13, read earlier? The, the, the plundering of your property? To joyfully allow that? I'm not saying don't fight in right kind of ways, but if it came to that, that you would, rather than shake a fist and say, my rights, that you would say, I counted all gain in Christ. Take it. You want, well, you're going to throw me in jail too? This is going to be like the early church really quickly, and guess what's going to happen? You're all going to lose. <laughs> Have that kind of excitement? I think that's happening, social justice, and it's not just the race thing. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help with the race thing. One more, one more on it. Um, you guys saw, unfortunately, like we're already doing presidential debates, right? Like, oh, come on. This is painful. I say, oh, I say that and you guys all just fall asleep, right? And they, you know, these debates last week and uh, poor Joe, poor Joe Biden, right? Making, being made fun of all the virtue signaling, right? You have tears and, oh, can't believe you worked with segregationists. You've been in the Senate back in the early 70s. Like, I can't believe you made that stupid argument because, you know, they were Democrats, and you guys are Democrats. So how about some, like, crawling over, everybody crawl over broken glass right now with the guilt. Um, you see, there are actual real sufferings, real hardships that African Americans have endured. I, I'm free, free to admit that. Um, the way to deal with guilt, the, d the way to deal with wrongs, the way to have real justice and real mercy is to have the real Christ. Justice and mercy are met on the cross. I can tell you there are many instances of this, and I'm not trying to virtue signal myself in this, but a couple months ago, um, speaking of pastors in the area, I, uh, I had lunch with a wonderful African-American pastor in the middle of, and I had just gotten to know him, so I'm triangulating, where is he at and such, and I, I say to him, just tell me the truth, you want a token white friend, don't you? And he <laughs> slaps his leg, he's like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, you're hanging out, you're just slumming it with the, the white pastor, Anglo kind of thing. He says, there isn't black or white. He says, there isn't Jew or Greek in the church. We're brothers. Somebody like that you can live with. Somebody like that you rejoice in. I've got brothers from other countries. Um, I think of a dear Ethiopian brother and a dear um, uh, Hispanic brother, both pastors. Um, and they, they are delight delightful for, to me. And do we have any tensions because of our ethnicity? No, the ethnicity is just a fun extra part on the fact that we both, that all of us have Jesus together. We need more of that in the church. Right? We need more of that, less of the social justice warrior mentality, which is really just a Titus 1.10 kind of spiritual problem. Right? You can hold me to that. I can get in trouble for that. I hope so. But we're in a pivotal time. It's not just social justice. It's not just race relations. It's marriage. It's abortion. I mean, can you smell it out there? The, the pro-choice side of things, is sh they're quaking in their boots. Why are they quaking in their boots? Because Christians since the 70s and earlier, but let's say since the 70s, when we had that horrible decision with Roe v. Wade, Christians said, okay, we need to double down and figure out how does the gospel apply here? Who is Jesus in the midst of this? And we got to do more than pick it because the world can pick it. Let's do stuff that only believers can do. And so adoption, right, 3D imagery, um, crisis pregnancy centers, on down the list, rolling out the love of Christ to people. And what does God do? He saves people. He saves people from that great evil. And it seems like he's close to breaking in a significant way. It won't be done yet. The fight will still go on. But uh, perhaps breaking in a very significant way that, that idol in our, our culture. And the other side can sense it. They're terrified by it. 
And what we need to do is not act like them, but show them the love of Christ. Be like the Gentiles. Hey, I'm willing to give up this. I'm willing to sacrifice myself to, to love you. No, I know you just want to run me through. You want, you, hands off my uterus kind of thing. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I wasn't making that move. No, we just want to love you. I can't believe it. I know, because that's the wildness of God's love. We love you. How about homosexuality? You want to go there? People who are, are caught in this great evil um, or transgender stuff to go one step weirder. Uh, people who are stuck in this, right, who have these unwanted um, affections and, and the church sits and says, okay, just stay, stay way, way over there rather than saying, you know what? You're talking about identity and it seems to me the gospel has something to talk about identity. Identity in Christ. Hey, have you, have you heard about this? It's been, it's been rocking and rolling for 2,000 years. It's pretty amazing. It's changed my life. Where there isn't male or female, Jew or Greek, black or white, and so on. And Jesus can save you too, just like he saved me. Find your identity there. All this identity crisis longing is just screaming for us to say, you know, Jesus answers that. And when they say, you know, go the social justice way, say, no, that's a different gospel. I'm staying on message, staying with Jesus. We speak into that. I think, and we go on and on, statism, for instance, sexual morality, more broadly, moving people groups. If Darren's here, I haven't seen him, but what he did with Jesus in Athens is just brilliant. Immigration, on down the list. Not to go the social justice route, but to say, look, we as believers have something to say out of the gospel. And we are willing not just to grab at our rights, but we're willing to suffer. We are willing to give up things. We're willing to testify of the goodness of God. This isn't just a skirmish for us. This is a, a fight to the death, so to speak. We're willing to die for the sake of the message of the gospel. What does God do with people like that? They become pivots in history. This is the concluding word here. This is what the Jerusalem Council is. You don't have the church as we know it without the Jerusalem Council. It was a pivotal moment. They played their part. They played their part well. They stuck close to the gospel. They adorned themselves with the gospel. They didn't argue outside the gospel. They demonstrated themselves as loving, caring, gracious, truth-filled, spirit-filled, bold men. They played the part, and God used them. Are you going <laughs> to sign up for it today? That's what you're signed up for in this in this battle that we have in front of us culturally, it's not the same thing as the Jerusalem Council, but I think there's a connection that's there. Play the part. Be bold. Go with the grace of God. Trust him for the increase. He's going to do marvelous things. <laughs> really is in our age. When given the megaphone, speak the name of Jesus. Speak it clearly. Speak it often. Let's pray together.